This is episode 16 of Talking With, Brian Lamb's conversation with historian Richard Norton Smith. It starts after this. Put, put these in perspective from your the way you look at it and their importance in our country, the Supreme Court. Well, you know, like many Americans, I revere the court. It is a fascinating political development, and it's had a significant impact on our politics and on our presidential politics, that in the last generation or so, a discernible difference has has emerged. On the right, the court is seen as absolutely essential, and indeed any number of more traditional Republicans, for example, are willing to go along with the Trump presidency specifically because of the court and because, uh, first of all, of the justice that he's already put on the court and because of the expectation that if he serves a full term, let alone two, that he'll have additional opportunities to shape the court along conservative ends. For some reason, conservatives have a strategy a long-term strategy, uh, and a passion about the court, which traditionally, and it's relative, uh, is less animating on the left. I, and I, and I, I, don't, I don't fully understand it, because the court and its rulings are every bit as important on the left. You know, and the cultural wars increasingly have migrated from the political arena because Congress can't or won't address intractable issues, they wind up in the courts. How powerful, in your opinion, has the court been in relationship, again, to the... I want to ask you about four different areas. The media, the court, the Congress, and the White House. And over time, how that's changed, and how do you perceive those institutions and what impact they have? On yeah, well, the media said we talked a little bit about how, uh, you know, the media have evolved. Um, you know, I always use the example that um, the Oval Office speech, you know, used to be a staple. Uh, indeed, it was it was it was one of the great tools in the presidential tool chest, a weapon in his arsenal. It was in many ways. Uh, the the the, uh, the the chief weapon in the in the in the battle to persuade Americans and the media were winning or not an ally um, to revert to the days when three men in towers in New York controlled ninety five percent of the audience Richard Nixon or an underling on a Monday afternoon could call, make three phone calls, and the president would have an audience of 70 million people that night. And it was unfiltered, except at the end, poor Eric Severide would offer his instant analysis. And Nixon could move, and I'm not singling out Nixon, Ronald Reagan had great success, likewise. It's no accident that that was just on the cusp of cable TV and then the internet which have destroyed that element of the bully pulpit. 
I would argue. Today, and all, there are very few Oval Office addresses. First of all, the networks might not cover them. And, and more important, fine, you can watch it through other, through other media, but the odds are, you know, there are millions of people, as I say, who are self-appointed severides, who Twitter their instant analysis before a speech is over. By the way, what's wrong with it? It makes it a lot harder for a president to be heard. Um, State of the Union address is a classic example. It's not the media that killed the State of the Union address. Lyndon Johnson decided in the 60s, to move it from noon to the evening. And I said, oh, what a brilliant idea. You know, you hugely increase the audience. Here's the problem. The television camera distorts everything it comes in contact with. Eventually, it destroys any semblance of spontaneity um, or naturalness. The State of the Union address is now Kabuki Theater. It belongs to cable TV, um, who spend a week building up non-existent suspense and speculating about what it might contain and, and how it might influence uh, the electoral calendar that follows. And then it happens. Ronald Reagan took it up another notch by introducing the heroes in the balcony. Remember? Those selfless people who jumped into the Potomac River when planes crashed or rescued little girls in wells or, you know, whatever. Um, it, it, it turned George Washington's annual address to Congress, which was in effect um, a CEO's report to the stockholders, um, into a highly stylized theatrical performance. So now we we have stopwatch in hand to measure how long the speech goes. We note how many times it's interrupted by applause. Who applauds? Who doesn't applaud? Does someone shout out uh, inappropriately? I would argue. <laughs> I mean... It, it didn't begin with Barack Obama. Um, when, when Gerald Ford, in April of 1975, went before Congress uh, in a last hopeless attempt to secure funding to, he thought, forestall the collapse of the South Vietnamese government, uh, at least two members of the House stood up and walked out in protest. So, I mean, you know... That's fine. That's, that's you know, par for the course in a democracy. Um, and somehow that's more... But, but it's part of the theater. This, this is my problem. The theater of politics. Heavily scripted. Visual. And usually lacking in nuance or, or subtlety. You know, it's a school of public relations has corrupted American politics generally. 
and events like the State of the Union uh, in particular. So, you know, they come along on the calendar and um, they happen. And the next day we move on to the next made-for-TV sensation. So we talked a little bit about the court, a little bit about the media, and now Congress. Well, the court... Um, it, 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 I mean, I, I understand why the right uh, is as passionate about the court, because in many ways the court has become not only the third branch of government, but the only branch of government that is actually... Um, passing judgment on large social and economic issues. I mean, to the degree that Congress um, is is reluctant or unwilling to address such issues, it, it, it cedes the legislative function to the judiciary. And inevitably, one result of that will be people who believe that the courts are exceeding their mandate. Um, and that's part of the argument between left and right, depending, I suppose, on on what you want, how you want the court to rule. But the court arguably is doing that because, you know, the hot potatoes are being tossed in its lap by elected officials who, for whatever reason, have decided to abandon their 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 legislative responsibilities. The court. So, you know, the, how many times have we heard the line, we want judges who will interpret the law, not make the law. Fine. Then guess what? Then you stop making the law. You know? Why but, are they having trouble, from your perspective, making the law? Well, a lot of it is cowardice. Um, a lot of it is taking the short term about, you know, what it takes to get reelected playing to the perceived folks back home. Hasn't that always been there, though? Yeah, but I would argue the stakes are, are higher and the, the media profile is more intense. You know, I mean, the other thing that we haven't mentioned, and it's, it, it sounds profoundly un-American to, to mention it, the single biggest worry that I have about the future. And in some ways, I'm, I'm glad I won't be around <laughs> to see it either confirmed or denied. Are what we call low-information voters. I mean, the great paradox is, in a nation where, in theory, we have access to more information than ever before, <laughs> we're a low-information nation. The number of people of 300 million Americans, the number of people who, who follow, closely follow government is, is nowhere near the number of people who turn out to vote, even in an off-year election. But what would have that been 100 years ago? Women couldn't vote. No, and and, and you, you no, and I'm not I'm for the, I'm not suggesting for a moment that the expansion of the electorate has has in any way produced that effect. Um, the the difference is a hundred years ago. Interesting enough, look at the voter look at the voter turnouts. Okay, the the much maligned Gilded Age, 
saw 80% turnouts. Men. Understandably. No African American. But, 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 but it's the only thing we have to measure, all right? What I'm saying is, of the political audience, 80% cared enough, were emotionally engaged enough to vote. But do we know? And, 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 I, and actually, I would go a little further. The, the fact that even then, large and growing numbers of women who were denied the vote were passionate enough about demanding the vote to literally, you know, throw themselves, you know, uh, 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 before um, the law and, 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 and worse. In other words... In the Gilded Age, people define themselves by the party they belong to as much as the church they belong to. And in most cases, both were for life. Stop to think. Politics, think of the multiple functions that politics played. You didn't have television. You didn't have the Internet. You didn't have forms of diversion or entertainment that we take for granted today. Politics supplied much of that. In addition, think, think of what it must be to have lived through the Civil War and the run-up to the Civil War. Think of the, of the effect of all of that concentrated, accelerated history that every single American carried around, like the ball and chain, you know, attending Jacob Marley. But, I mean, think of the, in a sense, obligation that being part of that generation imposed. And and think of the issues, think of the enormity of the things that were being debated. You know, race relations in America. The, the, the How were we to deal with four million former slaves, how were we to integrate them into our culture? The rise of labor, organized labor, uh, and the contrast with the great plutocratic fortunes, the, the surge in immigration, and the impact of, of Tammany Hall and other machines and the relationship that they established with immigrants. I mean, this was a country in flux, in huge profound ways I would argue arguably more than today and politics and and party identification you know afforded people a way to participate in and and they still believed influence I mean it's no accident that election after election after election you know with uninspiring candidates, I believe the I think the single the biggest turnout in American history was when Benjamin Harrison ran against Grover Cleveland. I mean, neither of them charismatic in the modern sense. Can anyone remember what either of them said? So there was something larger than the candidates that drove this intense political activity. And and I, I fear that's gone. But what about the possibility that everybody reveres 
the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, that those they revere it without reading it. Well, but those documents were written to bring about a society that we're closer to now than we were then. No, and that's why I would argue that American history. You know, I often say, the more you know of our past, the more optimistic you'll be about our future. I, 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 I might question that right now, but I mean. But isn't that right now, though? You just what, don't what, like see, what's going on. No, no. Well, what I would argue, you were right, as I understand the thrust of the question. American history is a success. America has come, and particularly, the problem is we, we so often, understandably, look upon this in isolation. You've got to compare. What other country, for example, has gone through the wrenching, redefining, unfinished business of, of race relations? Now, you could argue they didn't, they didn't have to because, I mean, the incredible diversity of this country, which, you know, I would argue is one of our great, great strengths, nevertheless, poses real challenges. And there are periods, I wouldn't posit a theory of this, I wouldn't suggest that you can time your watch on it, but there are clearly periods in American history when we are uncomfortable with that diversity, when a nativist strain um, takes center stage. It's insecurity. It's it's national insecurities. And stop and think what we're living through. The insecurities of, of economic performance, the fact that, yeah, look, let's face it, globalization has bred a level of insecurity that is arguably unprecedented. The insecurities of education, um, fears, legitimate fears, that many people hold about their place in a culture, a culture that many people feel is slipping away from them. They, they don't understand. They don't see the country that they grew up in. I mean, all of those things, I think, breed a collective kind of insecurity. And it's at times like that when we become more vulnerable to demagoguery, um, to um, xenophobia, to use a, a fancy word, when we become intrinsically more suspicious of the outside world when or suspicious of people who aren't like us. Um, and that's a recurring conflict within American history. But if you step back far enough and you put it in broad enough perspective, you accept the fact that although We've gone off track several times in our past. There's a reason if you go out on the mall, there are monuments to Lincoln and Washington and Jefferson and FDR and not to Buchanan and Pierce and fill in the blank. Um, it's because we build monuments to the presidents who, however imperfectly, and within the limitations of their day, nevertheless, broadly speaking, in their own way, contributed to 
the realization of that potential, the real miracle at Philadelphia, who left a more representative society as their legacy. And, and, and that's what makes the optimists, people like me, look at American history and see a broad theme, a theme haltingly, imperfectly, but nevertheless heroically pursued. Um, a theme of a more inclusive, more democratic, fairer, more just, um, notwithstanding the 1% and the 99%. Um, that, it could be argued, is part of our strength. The fact that, um, that we're having that argument. And that sometimes, inevitably, it gets noisy and it gets crude and, um, and we lose our way. Richard Norton Smith is an American historian and author. You can listen to more interviews with him by searching his name in the video library at cspan.org.